you don't wait to start building new ways of healing and justice and accountability um, and wait for the police to be gone in order to do that. You do it now. Season five, Facing the Fresh Five podcast. I am Rohati. This is the last episode of season five with Melissa Flora Bixler. I am recording on the traditional lands of the Treaty 7 signers. That's the Blackfoot, the Tsitsina, and also the Stony Dakota Nation. Also, Region 3, Métis Nation of Alberta. Welcome, friends. This is a podcast about deconstructing our faith and reimagining our Christianity. It's also a way to access Christianity in a new light to all those who are deconstructing or reconstructing, or to those who are just learning about ideas around spirituality. I think the pursuit of the spiritual is a very human trait. So welcome. You can support this podcast by checking out rohati.com and finding out up in the menu the sponsor or the support button. And you can find ways you can help out this podcast if you've loved it or liked it. Why don't you do that? Like it on whatever podcast system you're using. I also encourage you to find me online if you haven't. And finally, share this podcast as wide as you possibly can. You don't have to buy a box of books, although I'd really appreciate if you bought like a ton of coloring books. Man, I have a ton of coloring books. The other free way you can connect in here is to sign up for my newsletter. It comes out once a month and you get a quick reflection about the past month, some curated links that I found interesting, and then any up-to-date news about new projects you get to hear first through the newsletter. So sign up. This edition, I am happy to welcome... Mennonite pastor, we just say pastor, but uh, the Mennonite piece is reflective to some of the formation that Melissa shares with us. You can find her online, Melissa, F-L-O-B-I-X, that's on Twitter. Also, MelissaFloorBixler.com. She has two books out, one that just came out How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger, and the Work of Peace. And that is her sophomore book. The first one is called Fire by Night, Finding God in the Pages of the Old Testament. She is signed and writing for Herald Press, which you might find, uh, you might recognize that because I will be bringing my fourth book out with Harold Press in the spring, summer 2022. Without further ado, this episode is going to jump into a conversation about both of Melissa's books. At the end, we'll have her latest. And in between, we're going to talk about ministry and what it means to lead a predominantly white congregation in her neck of the woods. I'll let her share where she's from and all that jazz. So without further ado, let's draw into our conversation here with Melissa Flora Bixler on how to have an enemy and other good things. Thank you so much. I welcome you to the podcast on book release day, which is very exciting. Uh, Your latest book is out and you are a book machine. I don't know what the right term would be, but your fire by night, right? That came out maybe a year ago. Two years ago. That that would be amazing. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then today how to have an enemy righteous anger and the work of peace we're going to come back to your books and spend some time lingering on both of them but uh lift up how to have an enemy so apt for our present 
day and age. But in order to draw you near to listeners, uh, we want to get to know you a little bit better. So welcome. Who are you? And let's start by whose lands are you situated on? I live on the land of the Kohari, um, the Saponi, uh, the Lumbi, um, lots of other tribes that um, called this land home and um, that is now called Raleigh, North Carolina. I, uh, before we got on, I was sharing how I sometimes can only situate spaces based on their hockey teams. Um, and so for the Canadians, be, oh, okay, where the Carolina Hurricanes are. And then you said it, the folklore is college basketball, and it was between who and who, Duke and Duke and, and UNC, the University of uh, North Carolina. Okay, okay, so that will that will resonate with our American listeners for sure. Uh, draw us into your vocation. What do you do that brings you life? Um, maybe it's maybe it's not your vocation, um, but I'll assume. Um, and perhaps what are your passions right now? Uh, my, my job, my vocation, my passion is that I am the pastor of a Mennonite church, a small Mennonite church here in North Carolina. Um, and that, um, one of the kind of jokes that we make about my job is that it sort of lets me be a freelancer for Jesus. And um, so I get to do a lot of things in my role. And, and I have a really lovely church that sees that role as expansive, um, that um, the good news that we proclaim is um, good news in community organizing, in abolition work, mm -hmm. in um, working with women in prisons, with writing, um, with preaching, with caring for people's um, emotional and spiritual lives in our church. Um, and so I am just in this amazing job where I get to do all those things every day. And uh, so we um, also have a, a community that is um, uh, deeply committed to the uh, liberation of LGBTQ people and our church is um, a place of sanctuary and safety um, for um, people who have been harmed um, in other church spaces. And, and so we work, we do our best to cultivate a place um, of, of sanctuary, true sanctuary, true rest for people who um, find that the rest of their lives are places of bad news. Um, mm. And we want our lives to be good news mm. um, for others. Is that something that you inherited with this congregation or did you build it into that? No, I think that there, um, there were some shifts when I got there. Um, I, I, I think that there is always a tendency in Mennonite churches um, to to see conflict or um, as something that we really need to work hard to repress or push down. Um, and so I would actually say that more than sort of spurring along sort of inclusion or anti-racist growth, the thing that we did as a congregation is, um, I guess in the words of Lynn Tonstadt is, I, I really was intent on in helping our congregation become a community of argument, um, a place where, um, those arguments could help us to understand what we needed to be for, who we needed to be for, um, and that, uh, that that didn't have to be destructive, that that could actually um, help to um, clarify for us who we wanted to be and, and who we were called to be in this particular moment. Um, and I think once you open that door and help people become comfortable with being a community of argument, um, a lot of the things that um, maybe we're scared to talk about, especially in majority white churches. Um, they sort of they're waiting there. You know, it's not like people don't want to don't want to talk about these things, or they're you know they're they're they they want to, and they don't know how to. Um, and I think that has been for me a big part of this season of life in this church is welcoming and creating space for our discernment as um, this particular people of God. You used a term there that I don't think I've heard. And we obviously come out of different traditions somewhat. Um, so maybe it's something that's connected to 
your tradition, but a community of argument. Expand on that. Where did you pull that from? Is that the third book you have coming and the topic of it? Uh, yeah, no, that is not me. I definitely want to um, credit Lynn Tonstadt, the theologian, mm -hmm. with with that term. And um, I, I do mention um, Dr. Tonstadt's work um, at the beginning of the book and um, and talk a little bit about the, her influence on me. I, I wanted to start off with this most recent book with um, sort of, I, I think I called it um, uh, Acknowledgements of Gratitude, um, but it felt like it was important to name right up front rather than you sort of reading the book and then, aha, this is where all this stuff comes from. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, and Dr. Tonstadt is, is one of those people who had, offers us this way of thinking about um, our relationship to stuff that isn't church stuff as non-competitive. Um, and part of that um, non-competition is that we can, in the church, create spaces for conflict and, and communion and argument all at the same time. Um, and that that is actually how we figure out um, the the stuff that's available to all of us that is just God's gift to us in creation, um, church or not church, and what this means for our particular life um, as people who follow Jesus. So you had mentioned that the church, you're leading a church that's affirming. Is that yes. an accurate term? Yep. So you've, you have traveled down that road and, and the community, the church community has as well. And I know your latest book is uh, draws closer to uh, more racialized issues of justice. How has it been in, you mentioned a predominantly white church, uh, to usher in conversations or arguments surrounding white supremacy and that's a big uh, that that if there's a word to uh spark uh, something white supremacy is one of them in in white congregations you know i i i will say that this congregation has um done a lot has done a lot of its own work um and its own sort of understanding of the need to be in solidarity with black and brown liberation in our community for a long time. Um, I think what's um, something that I know for majority white congregations, mine included, is anti-racism is always um, both aspirational and um, in ongoing work. Um, so I don't know that we would ever claim we are yeah, you've uh, arrived. A, or an arrived um, anti-racist congregation, um, but we are uh, certainly a congregation that I think more than, um, and this has been, been part of our journey too, it, more than wanting to say, you know, we want diversity or, you know, the most important thing to us is that we um, cultivate a community that, 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 that looks like that has black, brown, white people all worshiping together. Um, actually, the most important thing for a majority white congregation is to deal with your racism first. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. um, and part of that, that realization for us is that because we live in the South, um, we um, are surrounded by Black churches. Um, and mm. in, especially in the South, of course, everywhere in the U.S., Black churches are places of and have been places of organizing and safe harbor and a place to be away from the white gaze um, one day a week. Mm. So actually, I don't know that that I or my congregation has a has a has a sense of oh wow we absolutely need to be a, a racially diverse congregation in order to be able to do what God has for us to do. Our work is to, is to is to work out the the ways that we can dismantle whiteness among us. Um, if that happens to be that that um, brings people who want to step into the leadership in this congregation who are black, indigenous, or people of color, that's that's great. Um, but we also respect um, the desire of a lot of people in our community to have spaces where where whiteness and dismantling whiteness 
isn't a part of their Sunday worship um, to be in places where one day a week you get to be away from um, from the constant intrusion of the white gaze. You just kind of alluded to there at the end that there is a dismantling of whiteness uh, connected in in the worship aspects of your church. What does that look like? Other than, I mean, the easy answer is, oh, we teach from the pulpit, but what what are, what do some practices look like in your congregation? Oh, you know, I, one that I think is important um, is for is how we treat and consider worship materials, songs, prayers, liturgies that come out come to us from um, other than white cultures, um, and. And one of the the metaphors I just spoke about this recently on in in an anti-racism panel for our worship, um, new worship hymnal for Mennonite Church USA. And, and when I was on that panel, one of the things that I talked about is for, I think, a majority white church um, to see those materials coming to us as gifts that are um, attached, to a, attached to a giver. Um, and the giver are are the communities who've offered these up. They've offered them in their hymnal. They've said, mm-hmm. here are these liturgies, here's the song mm-hmm. um, for you to have access to. Um, and what gifts do is they create a bond with the person who gives them, if they're really gonna be gifts. Otherwise they're just stolen, right? That's, um, they're they're taken or they're misused. Yeah. Um, it's the bond that makes it a gift. Um, and so to recognize that we become um, in some way bound to and responsible in, in certain ways for the communities who have who who now we share uh, their worship among us and it, it becomes a part of who we are. Um, so that actually changes our relationship. So we're not going to sing um, lift every voice unless we're also willing to like get into the street and um, and for a police accountability in our community. Like we're not going to do land acknowledgement ceremonies unless we're really ready to learn the history mm-hmm. of the land that, mm-hmm. that our church sits on mm-hmm. um, and to understand what our responsibility is um, to to that land and to those people. Um, and so um, that's one way that I think that becomes an important part of our worship. Um, the other one I say, I often uh, say that I'm just, we have a worship leader who is just incredible at this, is she is careful that we pronounce words in other languages, that we understand the history of cultures, that when songs are given to us, that we respect the culture that they came from. Um, and so there, when we sing a song in a different language, we all take time to stop and learn how to pronounce that language and what those words actually mean. Um, But that's actually really significant. Um, Otherwise it just becomes a way for us to perform sort of diversity among our congregation. Um, Mm. Sometimes it takes a little work um, to do that well. And I think we're, we're committed to that. So how do you navigate the plausible tension there of, of those exercises or practices turning into performance or just uh, turning closer to appropriation rather than embodied practices or appreciation? Yeah, I do think that um, that that continued question of how does this make us responsible and have Mm -hmm. we fulfilled, um, have we responded to the bond that this Mm -hmm. creates? Um, And so that that sort of takes us outside of worship, like worship creates that bond and then the rest of our corporate life is answers the question of what does that bond mean now? And um, which I love because it means that worship is not just something we sort of we do in response or, you know, it's actually the it's it's the thing that that um, helps us to identify what the life of our church is going to look like. Mm. Um, if this is going to be a part of our worship life, um, we need to be responsible. So one example of this is um We've had a couple people in our congregation who've spent um, 
years living in El Salvador with the base communities, um, uh, which were started by Oscar Romero in the 80s. Um, and in this real challenge to the hierarchical model of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, after years of hearing about these communities, one of our, our church people, Angel, wanted us to go down and visit. Um, and so we we had a grant, we took a few people down, we came back and shared what we learned about communion practices, which we were studying, and brought back some of these songs. Um, and so the question was, well, what does this mean for us now in relationship to El Salvador? Um, and so we went back to the community and said, "We we are we are linked to you now. We're, we we are, you know, what what do, what can we do to be um, um, to honor these gifts that you have given us?" Um, and so since then, we've done um, a couple like uh, like teaching days where their communities have um, zoomed in with us to teach us the things that they're learning um, about water rights protection in their area, um, what that might mean for our organizing here. Um, They are two children from one of the families um, that they asked us if we could sponsor them going to secondary school. And so we pay those school fees um, for them every month. Um, And then we've worshiped together. We've, um, because of Zoom life, We've had uh, we've had times where we've just sung together or had times to worship um, together on Sundays. And so for me, that was a, a really good example of the ways that um, those gifts uh, uh, show us what 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 the gift, uh, how the gift makes a demand on us. What I'm what I'm hearing is a cultivation of relationship, which like I was like affirming like yes that's that's it like how else draw near in relationship and to draw congregations together that way it's also neat to hear your story of the congregation uh, connecting to the process of becoming we we use the terms now anti-racist and the formation of becoming uh, anti-racist or embodying justice I, i i would concur with you in that I don't think white congregations can become diverse. I, I think there's all these steps before that. Um, and y'all going to spend your whole lives in pursuit of that before we switch off the racialization of the church. Like, that's that's so big. Uh, but the formation of community and individuals is the one that takes so much time. Thank you for sharing your work a little bit and giving us a glimpse of your work. Um, it's it's really neat. It's so, I think at least, especially when it comes to contemporary practices, different than what is the norm. I wonder if we should switch gears now into your books. Uh, let's start by with Fire by Night. I, I have a question that is apt because... Uh, not related to this. I had a friend text me maybe last week, not even a week ago, talking about the Old Testament, which is what Fire by Night is centered around. Can you give us a synopsis, a little summary, maybe the inspiration to the book, but also what's inside uh, waiting for the reader? I I wrote that book um, after years of hearing uh, Christians with this question, what do we do about violence in the Old Testament? Mm. I think that's mm. the, the sort of the, and I ended up in one year, the year before I wrote this book, writing three book reviews of books that were trying to answer this question, mostly from in my own pacifist tradition. And every one of them just just something didn't sit right. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be a generous reviewer, but you know, I just, I would just say like, I, yeah. I'm not sure about this or, you know, um, we weren't good enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, there's just, and, it, and it, I think it, at a certain point you have to stop complaining about other people's work and just be like, all right, I'm just going to give this a shot. I'm going to like, see if, mm-hmm. see if I can okay. do any better. Yeah. Like, instead of just asking you all to like read my mind. Um, and so I wanted to um, sort of take this to, yeah. Um, stop complaining about other people do it myself. Um, and then, um, but I wanted to do it in a particular way, which 
I think is what actually the Hebrew Bible does, which is um, show and not tell. Mm. Um, and and so I, at the beginning, when I originally wrote it, before it went through an editorial process, um, I I actually started it with no stories of violence from, from the Hebrew Bible, which kind of feels like a weird way to write a book about responding to violence. But it was sort of my, maybe a little over the top way of saying, actually 99% of this book is, is simply a story of God's um, ceaseless and a relentless love for a particular people who are constantly being crushed um, by the powers around them um, and God coming to their aid and them messing up and God forgiving them and then just doing that over and over again. And my editor said, actually, you should probably add a few other stories in here, which was which was fine. Um, and so added you know, stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, of um, the Amalekites, um, and I think those those did help the book a lot. But um, but I wanted to answer this question from um, let's to actually talk about the Old Testament as um, as a gift that we receive um, rather than as a um, a problem that we need to solve. Um, mm. uh, so that was that was how I wanted to shift the orientation for for this particular way of writing about the Old Testament. That's similar to this question that my friend posed to me, but he was asking a question out of a contemporary, just run-of-the-mill evangelical context, both his upbringing, upbringing but also where he's at now, and struggling uh, with the stories, struggling with the in- interpretation that he's been formed in. Uh, surrounding these stories in the Old Testament, which, when convenient, are postured through a lens of literalism. And so he's struggling with, what am I supposed to do with the stories of Jonah and Job and the stories of violence and the exodus and creation? How am I supposed to navigate these aspects when, A, uh, I'm seeing holes in the interpretive approach and B, how, how this story, this narrative, he, in fact, he doesn't, wouldn't look at it as a narrative when you pick and choose the narrative, uh, the forest from the trees kind of thing. Um, he's struggling with, with seeing how this story connects in a real and tangible ways to his faith today. It's easier to give it up, which I don't. I don't blame him. Like in an interpretive tradition that just sticks you in, you pick and choose. But usually, it's literal until it's not. That's hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not even just literal, but I, you know, I think one of the one of the things that I, that like one really helpful way for for us to to understand the Bible is also how. Um, interpretation happens as the Bible is being redacted and added to over time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Michael Fishbane, um, the Jewish scholar calls this critical traditioning that as the writers, uh, as these new stories are being built into the oral traditions, people are hearing them and they're no less horrified <laughs> by them as we are, you know, like yeah, yeah. we can read even today we can read the rabbis in the first and second century and see that they're not like, yes, let's go out and like there's always like another way, right? But even as these stories are being written, yeah. um they are adding stories that we can see in these layers of the text that also challenge some of the earlier stories. Mm. Um so Fishman talks about how um, you know, we have this tradition of like the the conquest narratives. And then all of a sudden, sneaking in to this tradition are stories like Rahab, um, times where, oh, all of a sudden the Israelites are actually making a truce with this tribe, or oh, suddenly we have a grain offering that's for all of the neighbors in the neighborhood. And and so so hmm. they don't they don't say like, oh, we're just gonna get rid of this because like this stuff is awful. It's like this still has something to do with them, right? Like this is, you you receive it, whether you like you like it or not, but you add on to it. Like you interpret through your own stories um, what's happening in, in the scripture. 
which is the same thing that happens in the New Testament. <laughs> this is the same thing mm. that happens in Acts. Like, this is what mm-hmm. we do. We mm-hmm. read the Bible and we say, wow, what is my story? How does my story, like how, when I see God, the Holy Spirit working among me, how do I, how do I understand this and fit this in? Right. It's not, not like one of those wins over the others. I, but if you're in a tradition of fundamentalism that tells you that the Bible just like dropped down from the sky, mm-hmm. that's not available, right? Um, so it's actually interesting that these scary sort of secular biblical studies tools are actually ways to help us um, to understand both what it means to receive a really terrible history and how to read it um, in a way that you can both hold it and also read new stories into it, which is something that white people need to know how to do as well. Mm. Um, um, so all of this is so ascent, is so important for us. Um, and it it is grievous to me that fundamentalism has taken those, ta- has taken, has made people choose, oh, I either have to like take this as like, you know, this like actually angels came down and mated with men and we got these Nephilim, like, or they didn't, right? Like, it, it's just grievous to me um, that that those are the only options presented to us. It, it, it really stunts imagination and the capacity to entertain ideas that aren't your own, which translates to pictures of God that aren't your own. Uh, maybe if you have God figured out in... God or Jesus is the white guy painted on the plaque hanging in grandma's dining room with luxurious conditioned brown hair and almost blue eyes. Like if you have those things made, certainty becomes a a necessity almost, but it's stifling. And it stifles God in the process. In what way do you think the contemporary readings and traditions um, of the Bible need to change? If you had to choose some, I think you've already you've already chatted about a couple of them, but some major yet simple ways to shift how we approach scripture we'll use broadly what would they be or to put it this way what would be a helpful piece for a listener to pull to say hey you could try this in your practices around reading the stories in the bible Hmm. yeah so i'll I'll talk about one that um is significant for me because um because the mennonite church is a, a prizes a model of congregational discernment um, around scripture. Mm-hmm. So um, I, so I would say that one thing that's important is who you read the Bible with, um, oh, or yes. if you've been told mm-hmm. that the Bible is something that a person stands up there and tells you what the Bible thinks, or whereas actually the scripture is actually a conversation, and it, it's going to sound very different depending on who you talk to that, talk mm-hmm. to about that. Yes. Um, I, I think you will, people will notice in how to have an enemy. A lot of those conversations that I'm having are with black women, with queer people. And you can see from there how different the kind of conversation is that you're having Mm. about the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so who you meant read with matters. Um, and the second is that it matters to read in community. Um, and that we actually have to do the work of discerning the Bible in community, um, that um, living, breathing communities <laughs> have always taken the stories from the Bible and asked, um, where is the good news in this? Um, mm. And that is actually the yes. question that drives my preaching. That mm. is the question. Um, where is the good news? Um, and who is the good news for? Um, and that, um, that is the task of preaching, is to make that question known before the congregation. Where's the good news? Who is the good news for? Um, and it is the role of the congregation then to affirm whether that new good news was preached mm. in my congregation. So we actually have time after every service 
uh, I'm sorry, after every sermon, um, where the congregation speaks back, um, whether they have heard those questions answered, um, and what other things that maybe were missed or that the Holy Spirit brought to them in that moment. Um, and so already the sermon is living among us um, because it isn't just me. Um, I only preach half the sermon. Half the sermon is preached by congregational mm -hmm. discernment mm -hmm. together. Um, and then the final, the third one I, I'd offer is um, to begin with the exclamation, um, I, God is here among us when we can sense that God is there. Um, and then to look for scripture as a way to help us understand God at work. Um, instead of what I think we often do, which is how do we think God ought to act? Mm, um, uh -huh. Is God acting the way that we think God should? Um, and so we're going to use scripture to, to stand over this and say, I'm going to judge this on, on the basis of how I think God ought to act. Um, that is the exact opposite of what happens in Acts, mm -hmm. <laughs> where all these things keep happening to the, to the new apostles. They, all these people who are not supposed to be mm -hmm. down mm -hmm. with the Holy Spirit yeah, are suddenly yeah, yeah. filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and if they went back and said, well, this, I mean, that is what a group of them does. They say, this isn't how God acts. Mm -hmm. um, and another group says, are you kidding? Like, we just saw yeah, it. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what does it mean when, when people are in the streets demanding justice and people are like striking for living wages? And when we see people in prison refusing to accept um, like the like the slavery, the constitutional slavery of our prison systems mm. working for a dollar a day. Like when all of these things are happening, we can say, oh, wow, that's good. God is here. Um, how do we understand who God is as we as we discern together that God is at work here? Um, and so those are those are three ways that I think can help us really transform our reading. That is so good. That's so good. This is like ta tangible ways. You, you must be a pastor. Right. The, the <laughs> tangible pieces to pull out, just practical things for folks to draw near to, maybe in different ways um, than they're used to, but ones that are so accessible and that will unlock these pieces that we've never seen before. It, it's so it's so incarnational. It's so like the the beauty of incarnation has always been how how much Jesus and how God is contextual among us, and that these stories and that the dream that God has for all of us for our neighborhood, city, and beyond uh, is is one that comes to us in in our language. It Matt, it's good news for us and good news for those who are in our midst too. Uh, let's trail off the rest of our time with the most recent book, How to Have an Enemy, uh, a, a contextual for sure. Uh, why did you write this book and who is it for? Yeah, so I wrote this book um, in this sort of nagging question that um, Jesus uh, so annoyingly introduces to us when he says, um, love your enemies. Mm -hmm. And um, this season um, of the Trump administration, I, I was asking that question in new ways. Mm. Um, and I was asking that question in new ways because um, I, I have had a, most of my political life starting from when I was 18 and voted for the Green Party for the president for the first yeah, time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How do they do? Not, yeah. Um, um, I, I haven't, I've never, and I, I think I always sort of had that like Mennonite sort of tendency to be like, look, like Bill Clinton is awful on immigration, right? Obama, the deporter in chief. Like I can, like, I can understand, like these parties are all playing for the same team and like, let's, let's be honest. Um, but I don't think we've had like um, such a concentration of tyrannical evil um, in our federal politics um, in quite the same way that um, has meant such destruction to so many people who are a part of my church life and organizational life and community. 
and it was overwhelming. Um, but what actually made it more overwhelming was the response that I often heard from especially people in the majority white church, um, which were things like, we just need to understand each other. Um, if we had better relationships, we could overcome polarization. Um, the real issue here is that um, if we, if we we're, our, all our hearts are in the same place, we're just confused about how to get there. Um, mm-hmm. a, a lot of both sides is um, yeah, over yeah. the past. Gross. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure you've heard this too. And so I guess this is a book for anyone who's felt gaslit by that experience mm-hmm. over the past four years and sort of feels mm-hmm. like, how is it possible that the Jesus I'm reading about in Luke is the same Jesus that's being offered to me as sort of like, well, let's just widen the tent and let's worship together on Sundays and see what happens. And so it was also, I mean, I think every book that writers write at, at, at some point is for themselves, right? And so this was this was in yeah, some yeah, way sure. my <laughs> my project to say like, I just need a, I just need a way to steady myself and, and, and really to just to feel like I'm not, um, yeah, I, like I can understand what it means to really love during this incredibly difficult time. Um, and, but in order to love your enemies, first you have to know who they are. Um, and so that became the exploration of the book. So bring us through the, the arcing narrative of, of, um, of your book the uh, subtitle Righteous Anger and the Work of Peace. What type of journey are you drawing the reader into? I wanted to begin with um, some of the, uh, with two chapters on uh, sort of unpacking some of these things that we've been hearing um, um, about the ways to solve the political conflict of our day. Mm-hmm. Um, and why some of those things uh, are problematic. Um, so like one would be example, the use of the language of tribalism as um, a derogatory term to explain um, people who have strong appeal- feelings or opinions or I, um, identity markers that link them partic- to particular issues. Um, so begin with a, um, just a, a look at the, the enlightenment colonial roots of the language of tribalism, who it is meant to exclude, um, um, who, who are the non-tribal people, the rational enlightened ones who are not mm. taken over by the passions of this moment, mm. um, which is basically people who are unaffected by, by, by politics. Um, they can live outside of it because of their race and their economics. Um, so after a couple chapters, um, get into more of the of the biblical material. Um, so some of the big texts that we're presented with, um, and but the first one being the imprecatory psalms, um, knowing that these psalms of um, anger, crying out for justice and revenge, mm-hmm. are often placed. They don't even show up in most of our churches. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and so I wanted to spend a chapter sort of that was that would have been a chapter I had want, would have wanted to include in the last book. So wanted to begin with that one um, and, and getting into more of the um, socioeconomics of um, how Jesus would have defined um, uh, enemies in his own time and how that enmity isn't just something that happens out there, but also happens internally. Um, but it actually is. um that Jesus often is a cultivator of anger that forms communities. Um, and uh, that never stops us from um, assuming that all of um, the sin and destruction happens out there um, because Jesus is, of course, constantly calling back uh, the disciples um, to examine how they have not yet fully pulled themselves away um, from their participation in those systems. Um, and so that led into three chapters on what I think are the three ways that we are most dis- we are most captivated by the old order of things. Um, the first is family, the second is money, and the third is is whiteness. Um, um, and then the final chapter is um, 
an opportunity to read Revelation um, with James Baldwin and to, um, to think about how James Baldwin imagined the possibility of the end of enmity um, and how Revelation sort of parallels that, um, some of the readings that he did. That end would be worth the price of admission. <laughs> Uh, it's almost like uh, a situation uh, you've situated the book rather on on aspects of we'll start off in in admitting uh, how much the Bible is glimpsing. It, it, it's almost pro revenge, pro revenge, pro anger, and then let's dismantle all these pieces and 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 shape and form them. We don't have it. It doesn't say that. We don't have, however, uh, healthy formation around anger uh, for so much of our understanding in in Western Christianity is to dissuade. Oh, it, maybe uh, I'll you say it again. Contemporary uh, Christianity is to dissuade those types of feelings and tensions, perhaps privileged helps us to exist in that world. Um, but we don't have that formation around what healthy, I, I wonder, it's like, I'm thinking about myself now. Like in what ways do I just shy away or can't handle in proper ways anger or righteous anger? Yeah. And there are people who genuinely believe there is no such thing, right? <laughs> that all anger is dangerous. And um, I read all those books too. Um, Martha Newsom wrote a book about this. And um, yeah, that there's, um, I, and, and I, I, I wanted to make sure that we, we could acknowledge um, that 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 anger is like a fire, right? That the, I think this is such a useful metaphor throughout throughout the Bible, um, but is also you know even popular among us today. Um, that fires can shed light on things; they can burn away places that need new life, um, and they can destroy, right? Um, and so, so to be able to think about um, the power of anger um, as something that. Um, changes, right? Depending, like, it is very different. White anger is very different than black anger. Um, it mm. would be one example of this. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What is the plate? Like, what is the, what is the source of white anger in our days? For, and what is the source of black anger? You can already see um, socioculturally in our organizational practices and protest movements, what each of those will, will garner. Um, and so, again, how are we thinking about how does power impact the way that um, some people are allowed to be angry and some people are not, right? Again, like I wrote about how um, the, the trope of the angry Black woman is alive and well in the city council chambers of Raleigh, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, um, that is still a political tool used to silence Black women in my city. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, and so we need to, to also recognize, right? Like certain people are allowed to be angry. Um, and so certain people are not, um, whose anger are we willing to receive? And what is the, what is, um, the sociocultural power that's attached to that, um, willingness, um, to yeah. receive it or to stand before it? Our whole conversation, and I'm deeply appreciative of it, has been centered uh, around both mechanisms, but also um, aspects, shaping aspects of formation. When I think about your books, your practices, I mean, I, I, I sense the, its implications beyond just the church. Like you're hitting something that's so apt for our age and that you're challenging something that's deeply ingrained in society, things we don't talk about and things we have trouble dealing with in healthy ways, anger being one of them. Did you have pictures of how this might stretch beyond just a Christian audience? Couldn't it? You know, I, I'm sure it could. Um, 
I, I'm, I'm actually pretty sectarian <laughs> in the sense of, um, you know, I don't really, I never, I never think like, oh, I'm really going to like change people, but like, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to change people. Um, like, this is going to be the one that finally breaks through. Like, okay. um, yeah. I, I think my, my sense is more like, um, the, the, again, the sectarian part of it is, um, we can we can build a new world mm, among us. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the old order of power and death is going to be here. Um, and but that doesn't stop us. You don't have to like. And this is I mean this is what I learned from abolitionists. You don't wait to start building new ways of healing and justice and accountability um, and wait for the police to be gone in order to do that. You do it now. Okay. That's it for this season. Going to try to gear up for a new one in season six. But for now, tell all of your friends they need to get faith in the fresh vibe. Sign up for the newsletter. Go and check out the show notes from all the episodes to link up with my guests and discover their books. I think all of them this season had a book, all but one had a book. Uh, Or find them on social media. Just follow these folks because they have been formative for me, and I'm sure it'll be the same for you. It'd be safe this summer as COVID comes into the prospective fourth wave to date this podcast. For the final words of this season, Melissa will read from the end of her book, How to Have an Enemy, a quote from James Baldwin. In his early letter, still fresh with hope for the civil rights movement, James Baldwin reflected on the stories of world-ending apocalypse in both Muslim and Christian traditions. And this is what Baldwin writes. I wondered when the vengeance was achieved, what will happen to all the beauty then? I could also see that the intransigence and ignorance of the white world would make the vengeance inevitable. A vengeance that does not really depend on and cannot really be executed by any person or organization, and that cannot be prevented by any police force or army. Historical vengeance, a cosmic vengeance, based on the law that we recognize when we say, whatever goes up must come down. And so returning to my own words, I imagine that this vengeance is galloping towards us. We hear the rumblings through history, the ground shaking beneath us. How will the world end today? And what will happen to all the beauty? 